philosophy is spirituality in the sense that it is this intense uh, investigation of the self. So if you don't know yourself, if you don't know your motivations, if you don't know your desires, your values, you, you're not spiritual at all. Welcome to the Zero Quit Podcast, where I bring you candid conversations with elite athletes, entrepreneurs, specialists, and other creatives. I'm your host, Brock Covington, and through these dialogues, you will hear powerful stories and practical advice that will help you live a more active and intentional life. If you enjoy the show, be sure to subscribe and share it with a friend. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Zero Quit Podcast. Today, I have on Gage Greer. He's an entrepreneur, digital nomad, writer, and creator of Turtleneck Philosophy YouTube channel, where he discusses existentialism concepts, as well as other philosophical ideas. How are you doing, Gage? Doing well. Thanks for having me, Brock. Absolutely. I was telling you before the podcast, I was a little bit disappointed you weren't rocking the uh, the turtleneck today. But either way, I'm uh, excited to talk about a lot of these concepts that my wife has absolutely zero interest in talking to me about. <laughs> yeah, uh, glad to step in for the wife. Awesome, awesome. So a little bit of like a uh, preface before we get into all this, because I know we talked about this a little bit about, you know, concern for you had concern for my audience as far as, you know, making sure it's applicable to them and interest in all that. And so I want to give a little preface for people that have zero uh, background in philosophy or haven't read a lip of it or whether they've only read meditations um, or anything like that, is that one, I think existentialism you're going to find through our discussion is very practical to uh, life, very much uh, so comparably to stoicism, to where you can actually implement the thing, you can actually conceptualize uh, the ideas and the concepts from these writers. And two, uh, neither of us are in academia. Neither of us are going to be speaking in some kind of esoteric way that is incomprehensible to anybody else. So with all that said, I'd love to hear how you got into studying philosophy in the first place. Yeah, so we'll try to not uh, make it esoteric for sure, but uh, yeah. <laughs> even even existentialists had, had trouble doing that. For sure, yeah. for sure. Um, yeah. But I started with... Uh, philosophy in college, actually. So I, mm -hmm. I studied psychology and then minored in philosophy. So that was my first real introduction into philosophy, studied applied philosophy. I think that's in my applied philosophy class. That's when I was introduced to existentialist philosophy. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and then, yeah, the rest is history. So it began. Yeah. What were the first kind of, I guess, book assignments um, within that, those classes, especially with, you said, uh, would you say sociology or psychology? Psychology, yeah. Yeah, that yeah. Because so, so who were the first kind of original thinkers before it got to applied philosophy, or was it kind of instantly you were thrust into these existentialist thinkers? So, the, so the applied philosophy was the class, but I think what applied philosophy I think more so embodied was pragmatism. Yeah. So pragmatism kind of evolved later in. Uh, with William James, um, John Dewey, mm -hmm. um, Charles Pierce. What exactly Pierce. are those? Because I've heard of that that school of like pragmatism, essentially as kind of like an offshoot from continental and analytical. But then I've also heard that you know a lot of these terms of trying to make a distinction between these sides is kind of superfluous or a little bit like not really necessary. Other like the analytic field definitely takes a different approach. Yeah, yeah, in a little, that's just the more Logic that came from the yeah the the Vienna Circle mm -hmm. that was has its own system mm -hmm. and applied set of rules that you're supposed to follow and it's very logical. 
Mm. Whereas, yeah, pragmatism, postmodernism, uh, post-structuralism, existentialism was, is, it's in the umbrella of continental philosophy. Mm-hmm. And that con- continental philosophy is more characteristic of everything that basically what is anti um, analytical philosophy in terms of yeah there's no it's like there's no else. real it's just like a post-truth kind of a thing so yeah. it, pragmatism did have that characteristic where it didn't rely so much on a absolute truth there isn't mm-hmm. an equation or a conclusion that can be solved um, yeah it's, just, it's not it's, mathematical no yeah way. it's yeah there is no final solution to that that we're going to come up with that where x equals this truth and that will stand for all time yada yada I think that's people's problem with with philosophy is they think it's very like pretentious or they think it's pointless because there's no definitives that like derive from it. But at the same time, I almost love that because I think there's very few absolutes in life. And a lot of it is just finding what's maybe more true than others or at least more valuable or useful than others. Yeah. Yeah. And this is the, well, no life, no, your life is unlike anybody else. Exactly, so it's yeah. it's giving dignity to each life. So uh-huh. it, and not to be so cliche, but you know, you find your truth. You know that yeah. that has that has a <laughs> there's a truth to that. There's merit because, to it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is, yeah. Yeah. It sounds weird, but yeah, it's that you you carve out your own path and what mm-hmm. what your path is. It's not really going to necessarily work out for others. That's why I like principles more so than rules because principles are mm-hmm. less rigid. Um, there is a a way to to go about life uh, in mm. terms of this is generally what works uh just thinking of an example and and i don't, I don't even as an like for existentialists you're not really supposed to have even those principles of how to go about life yeah. it's like follow your authenticity so follow your desires and that's likely going to lead a, away from the masses and the general mm-hmm. public um but, but yeah it's just oppose all that and just do your thing yeah it's defining your own kind of set of values and principles and referring back to those rather than yeah existing rigidly uh, according to those so here's the perfect bridge to get into what is existentialism i know you made a phenomenal video about this um so you probably have a a long-winded answer but if you could kind of give a broad definition of how you would describe existentialism as a movement and set of uh, loosely connected ideas and writers yeah yeah no it's uh it is a mouthful for sure it can be it can be <laughs> can be no yeah. but yeah i didn't make a, a short video on it i was actually pretty proud of that it was like three minutes long so mm-hmm. short and sweet but yeah to answer the question what is existentialism um it is kind of like what nietzsche said it, he he conveyed that it's this process of becoming right so mm-hmm. you're not you're not a noun you're not this fixed identity determined to do one thing or another you're more of a process, a verb, you know, made to mm-hmm. move and to flow and create who you want to be in life. So that's essential. That's the foundation of what existentialism is. But um, yeah, to take it a little bit further, it's uh, we can go over some themes. It, it follows a, yeah. a pattern. So if they, uh, and then we can also address that question. That's that's very suitable to to as a follow up to the question of what is existentialism mm-hmm. is existentialism of philosophy mm, so yeah that's and so to answer that question it's yes and no it's 
not a philosophy because uh, technically on a technical level, it's not a philosophy for the reasons that we've already kind of talked about because mm-hmm. it's not a analytical philosophy. It's not, it doesn't have a, like a system. set of, yeah, it's not a system. It doesn't have a set of principles and doctrines or mm-hmm. a, a method of self validating itself to come up with that absolute in the end. Uh, it's, it's not, it's aim isn't to be rigorously logical, you know, mm-hmm. like analytical philosophy is, but it is a philosophy in that it is this deep commitment to uh, certain themes that uh, affect how we live our lives. Mm-hmm. So some of those, some of those things I'll, sorry, this is still a little abstract, but I'll break Not it down a little, bit, a little bit go, more and, yeah. and give you three major themes of existentialism. So one of those three major themes is that it has to do with concrete experience, right? So mm-hmm. concrete, tangible experience, what you can taste, smell, touch, when hear. It seems like, not to interject, it seems yeah, yeah. like, because uh, one thing I wrote down was that they value, existentialists value the subjective experience greater than the objective material. So it's not, it doesn't look at life as far as like biological determinism, but it is that sense of becoming, of thinking about the user experience in the world and, and your set of values rather than looking at um, what's kind of presented uh, in the world already for you. Yeah, they value you, your subjective experience. Mm-hmm. So on a your self-conscious level. So what you experience, and that's kind of what phenomen- phenomenology yeah. really centers around that experience. Was, yeah. yeah, the, the uh, phenomenology is, is really the starting point of existentialism, which really focuses yeah. on your self-consciousness, what you come into contact with through your conscious awareness, what mm-hmm. you become aware of. So an example could be, what it feels like when you pet your dog or what mm-hmm. it tastes like to drink your favorite cocktail or mm-hmm. Moscow mule or whatever it be, whatever, or it could be a mocktail. It doesn't have to be alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, so, okay, so the, the second major theme, so we have concrete mm-hmm. experience. The second major theme of existentialism would be that it has to do with a staunch opposition to all things that have to do with formal interpretations of how to, derive meaning for your life or how to get Mm -hmm. meaning into your life or of life. So, and that's Mm -hmm. why they were such, uh, so antithetical to the church and the church fathers and their conception of God and how he is the source of meaning because Mm -hmm. they're like, no, it's, we're, we're, you're creating your own meaning. The, Mm -hmm. it's self-defined rather than given to you. Yeah, exactly. So it's not, Mm-hmm. And then we get to that that tagline, famous the, the mantra of existentialism is that your existence precedes your essence. Essence, yeah. Right. So it, it's not your essence. You, you don't have a starting point. Like what I was like what I was saying is that you don't have a fixed identity to become mm-hmm. this or that. You're you're created to make your own person, and mm-hmm. uh, and that really gets at the third major uh, theme is mm-hmm. that they were huge advocates of free free will and mm-hmm. free action on part of the individual, uh, which is why Sartre said, man is condemned to be free. Free to do what? Mm-hmm. Free to create your own meaning. You know? Man, we got like the same notes written down. I love it. We, yeah. Which we did independently because I got some of the same quotes from Sartre <laughs> written down. But that's perfectly that. It, I think that really gives a good broad and uh, graspable, for lack of a better term, uh, definition of what existentialism is and kind of lays a little bit of the 
groundwork and foundation where we can go from here. So yeah. Oh, and just just to quickly, yeah, just to add one thing, an addendum to that, what's very very important. And uh, mm -hmm. I was reading a um, something, but it really clicked. It's it it's that the more universal your experience is, the more existential it is. So yes, you're you're focused on your individual experience, but what makes it existentialist or more existentialist to a greater degree is how universal that experience is to other in people. In relation to others? Yeah. It, yeah. Okay. So, so this is why the, the fear of death and uh, responsibility are such through lines mm -hmm. through all existentialists because so many people go through that anxiety and that experience mm -hmm. of that. So, yeah. And it, one one thing I'll add uh, as well, though I don't want to go down this rabbit hole, but it kind of starts, I think, with as you mentioned with the phenomenologists, but back to like Kant and Hegel with their their distinction of, you know, we are subjective eyes and self conscious eyes in relation to other subjectivities, and just that like sentence or concept alone could be a whole hour plus podcast or lecture, um, because of all that is entailed within that concept. But to go back to that second theme that you mentioned about uh, being, I believe it was about being self-defined and so forth, but really I wanted to talk about how that connects to uh, nihilism because that seemed, this cloud of nihilism that developed uh, as pretty much a byproduct of the enlightenment and, and like growing uh, valuation of science. And as we mentioned, as people really wanting these definitive answers, nihilism started to create a lot of doubt and cast a lot of doubt on the church and divine morality and divine uh, purpose in life and meaning. And this decline in religion, we see this talked about in Dostoevsky. Nietzsche is obviously a huge critic of the church and of um, Christian morality and so forth. And the problem with nihilism and what a lot of these existentialists, in my opinion, were looking to solve is how do we define uh, morality absent of divinity how do we kind of have this to self uh self-defined morality and what is the justification for it where is the rationality for why we shouldn't kill which is in reference to like camus book i'm finishing up right now the rebel of course his first book the myth of sisyphus is looking at why shouldn't we kill ourselves why should we not commit suicide why is that immoral so you have this struggle because you're wondering okay well how can we prove the prove that this morality uh, should exist without some higher power kind of telling it you so forth. And then also it leaves us with a lack of purpose. So we're like, okay, well, what is our meaning? If our meaning isn't to uh, live up to God and his values, if our meaning isn't to get to heaven, if we don't believe in this afterlife, what is our purpose here? And what are these guiding principles? I mean, even in Christian morality and, and religion overall, it gives people a sense of community. It gives sense, people a sense of belonging. Um, they have an idea of how they should structure their family. And once you strip religion out of people's lives, uh, chaos and mayhem ensues. So with all that said, um, let me read off a quote from Pascal, yeah. which I really love. Are you a big Pascal guy? Not, not a big Pascal guy, but I, I know uh, who he is. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I like Pascal a lot. I feel like... When first time I read him, I wasn't like overly blown away, especially because his only real major work is Ponce's. But I think there's just there's hitter after hitter of I feel like quotes and concepts in this. But I think this quote uh, is a great way to stoke the flames of nihilism and where this is going. I'll let you run with uh, your thoughts on the matter. So he says, I see the terrifying spaces 
spaces of the universe hemming me in and I find myself attached to one corner of this vast expanse without knowing why I have been put in this place rather than that or why the brief span of life allotted to me should be assigned to one moment rather than another of all the eternity which went before me and all that which will come after me. So we have this existence. We're just thrown into it. Thrownness is a, is a Heideggerian term that he discussed that basically means we're kind of just thrown into this world with no blueprint, no explanation of why we're here, what our meaning is, what our purpose is, and how we should act. And that leaves us with this anxiety and angst, right? So what is your interpretation of, of how nihilism led to this movement? How nihilism led to existentialism? I guess, wherever you want to take it. Yeah, it's... No, so in, in reference to that, I, yeah, there is an appreciation for, yeah, I, I haven't read that bit with Pascal. And, and yeah, yeah, again, I haven't read a lot of them to, to begin with. But um, no, that that is just an appreciation for the mystery of life, just yeah. that we can be uh, grateful that there is anything that exists at all, that there is something mm -hmm. over the nothing. So that is... Yeah that is characteristic of existentialism but in terms of us doing away with morality or the moral fabric mm -hmm. of how we structure society and our in our politics and that being around religion uh nihilism definitely came into the mix because of I, well i think nietzsche mm -hmm. identified it you know with the yeah uh, god is dead the, the, yeah the, so the, the the madman in the, in the marketplace and he's mm -hmm. You know, he's basically saying that, yeah, God is dead and we have killed him because mm -hmm. w what he's seeing is that all around us, there is just this moral, uh, yeah, just Decay. not acknowledging God in our behaviors and our actions, in our comings and goings, in our, in our relating. We're, we're so, uh, yeah, so self-absorbed and not mm -hmm. respectful of the old ways of life, of, of tradition. And I think that came into that came into being because of the industrial revolution and so much of the, what was going on scientifically in, in industry, uh, because that became such a fascination. So when the, when the scientific method came into civilization and that started to really affect and to change the culture mm -hmm. more and more, people were starting to think more analytically, mm -hmm. starting to think more tangibly, more concretely and giving more value to whatever can produce can turn over something uh, that that has cash value uh, in the real world. Mm -hmm. So and God can't really do that on, on that level. Like you mm -hmm. can you can build a turbine through science and projecting math and physics uh, this abstract equation into into the real world and come out with a physical product. Mm -hmm. and and that can turn over and create and give you wealth and you can you can have a business from that so there's the fascination of that and that's what again the industrial revolution so that that's what it embodied so when that became more and more the mindset of people and the fascination of people there is that psychological uh not resistance but um yeah neglect of the metaphysical of what can be what's actually valuable about dwelling on the things that are good and true, virtuous, uh, worthy of respect. Yeah. The things that, that God t tells us to dwell on all the things that are metaphysical, just him and in, in himself. 
Yeah. It's becoming less of a priority because like there's so much more cooler things to do with science. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So just by the, or putting more of our attention to that, um, and, and less on God, it's obviously going to amount to being more morally corrupt. I mean, you're mm -hmm. just spending less time in the Bible, praying, meditating, and just one thing's going to lead to another. I mean, even those who aren't as devout as the others would just be a cascading yeah. down the road well, for a lot of people. It's funny because, you know, neither of us are religious uh, in that sense. And I, I think it's funny because as even though we might look at some people that are overly religious, right? We might look at Mormons and think that they are excessive and maybe their religion uh, doesn't have much ground to stand on. But at the same time, religion still grounds people in a way that is still a net positive, I think, for the most part. Most religion is still giving people a sense of, uh, again, belonging. It's giving them some kind of values that they at least have to kind of turn to and abide by and trust and believe. Because when you don't have God and you just have government, well, then it becomes a, well, who's to say I should listen to you? Who says that your morality is the right morality, right? You don't have this like standard of judgment to kind of go by. And I, I like that you kind of reference Nietzsche as like a jumping point for existentialism because we do have Kierkegaard kind of before him and we have Dostoevsky writing around the same time um, through his novels. Uh, and a lot of these themes are almost evolving and taking place in different parts of the world, uh, but concurrently in their own unique ways. And so like you mentioned, Nietzsche talks about God is dead, we have killed him, and he also talks about this reevaluation of all values. And I, I like Nietzsche's writing a lot because it is very much how he, he, he looks at nihilism and he goes, we got to find a way to basically overcome this because he sees Schopenhauer's writing. He sees this pessimism and doesn't like where it's headed. It doesn't feel like it's a very life affirming or, or philosophy that one can abide by and really flourish in life. And so he looks to combat nihilism and how he does this is by advocating for this reevaluation of all values and by advocating for this ubermensch, the Superman to come eventually that we can yearn to bring forward. And essentially what the Superman's capable of doing is defining his own values, as we mentioned, and living according to them. So really sitting down and figuring out, you know, what is important to me? Where, where do I find my existence to lead on to start as well? How do I materialize myself in the world? How do I define myself? What brings me uh, meaning rather than looking to a God or looking to a uh, even a community or looking to a government to hand off a certain meaning or way of life? And so the Ubermensch is this, yeah, interesting person who is kind of declining um, any values that society is giving forth and repelling those and, and coming up with his own. What are your thoughts on nature or certain principles that stand out to you uh, regarding existentialism? Yeah, with Nietzsche, it's, it's the I will, you know, it's that... Mm -hmm. That I will it's statement. that becoming, like you mentioned earlier. I really like that idea of like we're in this constant becoming. It kind of ties to Heraclitus, which I believe he was a big fan of the pre-Socratics as well, is that life is always in flux. And so we, as being a part of life, another organic piece of matter, we're constantly in flux. We're constantly becoming as well. Yeah, yeah. And for Nietzsche and the Ubermensch, it's to create your own values. Mm -hmm. And that's really what uh, 
that's what he tried to, I think, embody in himself. Mm-hmm. And he didn't, I don't even know if he, he could really figure it out. It, it's and, <laughs> it's and, funny because, because it's, it, it could drive you mad. It, and he yeah. did, he did go mad. And uh, it, it's not, uh, it's not for the faint of heart for sure. And this kind of goes back to why I think it, it is easier to go with that cookie cutter template and framework yeah. for what meaning is in life and subscribe to that. And it's so much easier. Cause I mean, at least mm-hmm. I had that background of growing up Christian and there well, is a lot really, of meaning in that. And, it's and I don't want to really hard to, and it takes a lot of effort to figure out your own values, justify them, constantly think through them, doubt them, redefine them, admit you're wrong. You know, it, it's this really hard process. And like you mentioned, it's a lot easier to just turn to the church and say, how should I live my life? What should I do? Yeah, just tell me what to do. Mm-hmm. We, we just want, we don't want to figure it out. We want to, we want to, we want the cheat codes. You yeah. Know, so many. <laughs> yeah. And uh, uh, yeah, it, especially if it's not a priority or if we're not, naturally it's if it's not in our temperament to be curious or open yeah. a lot of people can just opt out and just yeah tell me what to do uh but for those who are curious and more philosophically minded their value it, their values are kind of set to figure things out and mm-hmm. explore their own independence and their own authenticity in that philosophical way to determine what their values are what their motivations are mm-hmm. and and so forth and i think that is actually the foundation of spirituality in my eyes mm. curiosity um uh philosophy actually so well, i mean it, like i mean like the principle of curiosity leading to like your spirituality and like defining yourself yeah funny so i didn't really spell that out super clearly but i, I think spirituality um yeah philosophy is spirituality in the sense that it yeah, is this okay. intense uh, investigation of the self. So if you don't mm-hmm. know yourself, if you don't know your motivations, if you don't know your desires, your values, mm-hmm. you you're not spiritual at all. Like, yeah, right. Because that is the, the through line through every spiritual endeavor or enterprise. Because whether it's Christian, whether it's the new woo culture, everyone yeah. you know they have their metaphysics, sure, and it's all over mm-hmm. the place, you know. But despite, you know, just take out all the metaphysics. And if you just look and if you uh, look at that, that common thread is that it really is just to know the self more. Yeah, well, it ties back to like what we said, it comes back to the self it's like that's the very principle. And I mean, all we can experience life through is the self is the subjective through our own lens. So that's why it really matters to define your own values and why um like we mentioned earlier, as as much as I don't agree with how it's utilized maybe by the uh, radical progressive side of things of the idea of uh, know your own truth or your truth is like superior than, or more important than the truth, uh, there is, like you said, there's truth to the truth of that because yeah. all you can experience is yourself. All you can experience is the subjectivity. Um, so I, I do like that you, you tied that in. Like you can't really have spirituality if you don't have that internal uh, dialogue and that that introspection, uh, and I, I actually I was filming a solo podcast that'll come out I think two weeks before this about the idea of embracing boredom and solitude because as you know we reference and hopefully it didn't sound arrogant the idea of if you aren't philosophically minded you don't really think about the stuff and you you'd rather defer your values elsewhere. 
But sometimes it's just simply we get so distracted. We have constant media on our phone. It's endless scrolling. There's TVs everywhere. There's background music in every waiting room we're at. We're constantly just filling our mind with garbage and don't take the time to be alone. A lot of people get really uncomfortable if they have to spend time alone or I mean, we all hate being bored, but there's there's times in life you need to be bored. Like reading a lot of these books that we read, it's not always exciting, you know? No. Uh, so it's it's hard work, but it's rewarding when you do take the time to think through the stuff, um, assess your own values, assess what, you, what you're looking for out of life, question uh, what you've been told, and have that spiritual awakening in a sense. Yeah, and I think you'll discover it sooner or later and it might even be too late at that point because mm -hmm. you'll come into an existential crisis. That's why it's so common, mid-30s, and you're like, I've been working this job 20 years, um, mm -hmm. and you're just going through the rigmarole of life, you know, everything Monday through Monday through Friday, yada, 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 it's the same thing. And mm -hmm. you sit down one day and you're like, what is this all for? Like, what am I doing? Mm -hmm. And it hits you, and then that is the, the beginning of philosophy and spirituality, right? Know thy, th mm -hmm. know thyself. That's the Greek maxim. And and if you haven't put any time or effort into that investigation earlier on, you have so much work to do to determine what your desires are, what you mm -hmm. really want, because it's not at all clear. It's not at all clear what you want. Uh, yeah. and you really have to tease through so much of your past. You have to explore because sometimes what you think you want isn't really what you want after you try what you want, what, what you think you want. A hundred percent. So uh, another thing I want to ask you is where we reference Nietzsche, but he's not really the technical father of existentialism in that way. So who are some other 18th century writers that you feel like are worth mentioning? I mean, Kierkegaard, I'm really into and fascinated with him. Um, so, and I'm sure there's some others as well. And we can dig into Dostoevsky. He's, a, he's interesting because he didn't write you know, in a, in a treatise or philosophical way, but there's so many philosophical undertones, yeah. obviously, within his characters and novels. So who really jumps out at you? I think both of those, Kierkegaard and Fyodor Dostoevsky. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, those... Um, yeah, in terms of, like, being the fathers, those yeah. are Kierkegaard... Nietzsche. They're so fun to read too. Those three actually, like Nietzsche, Kierkegaard, and uh, Dostoevsky, are very. They have a a great pace to them. They have a lot of profundity in each, like section. There's not a lot of dry spots. I feel like within their their writing. Yeah, Kierkegaard and Nietzsche more than I'm sorry, uh, Dostoevsky and Nietzsche more than Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard oh, like is Kierkegaard? a. No, I like Kierkegaard. I actually, that was one of the first philosophers I really got into in college. Mm. Was sort, yeah, I was uh, super fascinated because at the time I was still very much religious and he was the Christian yeah. uh, existentialist. Well, he's, he's funny because of that. Like, what is your thoughts on that? Because he is like the only, I think the only existentialist, although Dostoevsky wasn't like a devout atheist, but Kierkegaard had those existential themes almost overlapped with his religious devotion in a, in a very interesting way yeah because yeah he, he was giving a lot of credence to the individual like his starting point mm -hmm. was the individual and that was kind of in opposition to hegel um yeah. who, who was a prominent philosopher and thinker at the time uh who was really just starting from the universal and 
drowning it into the individual where he was just doing the opposite of that, focusing on the individual mm -hmm. first and expanding. Um, yeah, so he, he very interesting. I, I resonate with him so much in that I could see his value for the truth uh, is just high on the rung of, of his hierarchy of values. Mm -hmm. And despite despite it all, despite discovering things that are in opposition to what he previously believed mm -hmm. or that could cause cognitive res uh, dissonance, you know, just that mm -hmm. there's that disparity in uh, what he was previously believing and then what this new uh, newfound discoveries were actually stirring up in those the, the conflict of the two, he would just embrace that head on and mm -hmm. still say yes we can't have there is no absolute truth we have subjective truth and we can't really know uh and he, he's had he had some weird ideas with god but he was he was a christian but he really did take mm -hmm. that leap of faith yeah and saying we can't prove it but we have to take the courage and just believe it anyways that's why i feel like because i think it's which is fun to, again, discuss this on and off camera, but yeah. uh, I think one book you haven't read by Kierkegaard is Fear and Trembling, right? Not, no, not completely. Yeah, And I, I think I, you would, I think you'd really enjoy it because it, it, and it's the most fascinating concept I found out of that book was that leap of faith. It's that idea of, and how he describes faith, it, it, it can be religious, but it could also be interpreted as just anything you like value heavily. And he uses this reference of loving a woman that you know for certain will never love you back or that you can't have because she's like married or whatever happened, yet still being devout and loving her regardless. Or as we you know reference God, like even with, uh, let's say, evidence that points towards the contrary, still holding on to this faith, taking that leap of faith. And allowing that value, allowing that uh, ideal to kind of fulfill you with joy and purpose, it it's interesting, you know, because I think a lot of people dismiss faith as mystical, but I just keep going back to there's something about this writing, and I'd, I'd have to do a deeper dive and study to really elaborate further, but it, it is interesting just the way he articulates faith as this higher, as this highest value, because I think he talks about it in another book, but there's like three stages where you, you're living hedonistically, then you're living ethically, and then you're living in this higher religious level that supersedes, let's say, the ethical, which is the service to your community the or aesthetic. your government or yeah. whatever. The aesthetic. That's right. It's aesthetic, then ethical, and then religious, I believe. And uh, exactly. And so it's just it's interesting. I don't know, but I, I you you mentioned the leap of faith, which he talks about the uh, night of infinite resignation takes this like leap of faith, and uh, yeah, I I really enjoy his writing. I think it's it's fairly easy to understand. I think it has a good like pace to it, and also uh, I read a literary review of his called like the second or the, the two ages. Yeah, I don't know if you've read that one, and that one I found was really interesting as a as a critique to society. He talks about like leveling how society. And the collective and the group mindset, the herd mentality levels the individual um, and, and basically, uh, yeah, submerges the individual rather than, which, which again, kind of ties back to how we're saying universal versus the individual, you know? Yeah. There's my off ramble, but yeah, he, he's a fascinating thinker. No, yeah. To sum him up, I think he is the, the bravest, uh, the bravest and most intellectually honest Christian ever because- yeah. He really just 
did tease it all the way down to the bottom and saying, hey, look, we can't really prove a God exists. Mm -hmm. And that truth is subjective. Um, and we really just had to take the leap of faith. No Christian would. I mean, and he got a lot of he got a lot of uh, strife and, and kicked back from yeah. the church for sure. Uh, but it's just he was so intellectually honest. I, I really just appreciate it for, from that guy and that even despite that, he had that the courage to, you know, pick himself up by his bootstraps and just move on and mm -hmm. have the courage to take the leap of faith. So I, I can't imagine being in a time like that where there's no other thinker, like where you're the pioneer yeah. of that thought and you have no one yeah. else to kind of bounce these ideas off of or just have someone at least remotely resonate with you on these subjects. Mm -hmm. It must have been well, so and a lot of them, specifically Kierkegaard too, they wrote under so many pseudonyms. Yeah, yeah. So that, so that they ass. were like, <laughs> yeah, to protect to protect their ass. And then uh, also, like you mentioned, a lot of these you know writers they became way more prominent after their death. Unfortunately, like Nietzsche was a big one, right? He was pretty yeah. underappreciated and neglected while he was alive, and then it's after that um well his works got exploited by his sister in like the Nazi regime, but but later vindicated and, and appreciated down the line. Um, yeah, same so with Kafka. We, yeah. yeah, yeah, Kafka. Too. Yeah, exactly. So I want to leap with that. Uh, so Dostoevsky has a very interesting uh, theme that I believe he brings up loosely in a number of books, specifically in the Brothers Karamazov, of everything is permitted. This idea that, okay, well, if God and this divine morality doesn't exist, then, you know, essentially everything is permitted um, and, and murder could be uh, justified in that way. And then this kind of leads to World War II, death camps, meaning through suffering, all these kinds of concepts that emerge and create this French existentialism movement where Sartre and uh, Camus were trying to examine, okay, well, what do we do with this hell on earth that just happened, right? And with this, this war that's killed uh, millions upon millions, unnecessary suffering all around, how do we uh, examine this? Because I think a big theme through existentialism, existentialism as well is finding meaning or justification, maybe not justification is the right word, but how do we assess suffering? Because we all suffer in the world. Schopenhauer talks about this a lot, that the world is kind of innately uh, evil in a way. For example, it kind of discusses like nature, even if we had the perfect utopian society, nature could still hit you with a hurricane and kill a bunch of people. And in that way, we're trying to demand justice and rationality from a world that is inherently irrational, a world that's inherently uh, filled with suffering. So with all that said, I wonder what you believe the morality is for existentialists or at least for certain existentialists because, again, I reference I'm reading Camus' book right now, and he's trying to examine how do we justify or really how do we uh, justify why murder is not permitted? Why, why should, why, what is the rationality for not allowing murder, basically? Yeah, I mean, it's just... Wherever you want to jump with that. That was a long-winded... Uh... Yeah, yeah, it's... I... <laughs> I, I think to to answer that was so after post world war mm -hmm. this is where existentialism really came into its flourishing because yes. they it was a new way of thinking about how to deal with these deal with this this question of so much evil in the world like why mm -hmm. would god allow this to happen right like if there was ever a good god he would never allow these atrocities mm -hmm. and so this really gave a, a good foothold for existentialism and other philosophies to come in and provide answers and substitutes 
to those to the answers of of yeah of, of suffering and of meaning and so if, if there is no god which i think that's kind of what, what a lot of people took to mm -hmm. start with it's just like there can be no god with these kind of circumstances mm -hmm. around us uh my family are dying horrible deaths um i just refuse so it they're mm -hmm. starting top down in a way where they're like starting with okay there's no god and then they're working if back this down. is true yeah, yeah then, then what then how right. then how can this be the then yeah so then what mm -hmm. how do i make sense of life and how do i create meaning and then what 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 is everything around me and then so yeah that's that is the enterprise of existentialism is just making your own meaning mm -hmm. uh, and that you're responsible for your own life which is i don't think people realize how terribly uh, psychologically disturbing and hard that is uh, well i wrote about own... it i i think i think you gave me a little like on my story because i, I I threw something up on my story a few days ago. Most people probably just gloss over because they're like, this is just, I don't, I don't need to read all this in my life. But it, it is very lonely and it can be disturbing to think about that everything is on you. Like it's a really interesting realization when you realize and take that responsibility that, yeah, like it is all up to me to define these values, all up to me to figure out, you know, you're essentially trying to create meaning in a meaningless world. And I think that ties perfectly into Camus, who I know you're a big fan of, um, and his idea of the absurd. So I guess talk to me a little bit about Camus, his philosophy, and existentialism versus absurdism. Yeah, so Camus' philosophy, absurdism, it's, it is, uh, some say it's a subset of existentialism. Some say it is hand in hand. Some say it's completely separate from existentialism. Um, he, he, I feel like it's mostly existentialism. He just wanted his own thing. <laughs> yeah, it, and it's well, no, they they did have some key differences. Him, yeah, and, him sure. and Sartre had, had, Sartre few, had issues. Yeah, had a, had a tiff or two. Uh, but it was a, it was mainly surrounding a, different emphases, is what I would say. Mm -hmm. So his emphasis was on Sartre's emphasis was on uh, authenticity, uh, and your essence, I'm sorry, your existence preceding your essence. Mm -hmm. And so you're, you have a, a complete, you have, you're condemned to be free and the onus is on you. The responsibility is on you to create who you want to be in life. So mm -hmm. that's really what he was fixated on is that, uh, is you creating your own meaning and being authentic to that whole project of becoming of, and really, mm -hmm. yeah, not living in bad faith is another uh, phrase he coined bad faith mm. being inauthentic in other words mm. so and then uh what Camus kind of leaned into more was the absurd acknowledging the absurd as the the nihilism of <clears throat> it, to define the absurd i'm sorry that's just kind of going yeah sometimes i forget you know the audience well, here we need it we need it well not only for the audience but i feel like for ourselves it's better for our, uh, to, to almost explain it to ourselves and a uh, like to like you're explaining to a five year old, right? Like you're explaining to a kindergarten, because um, sometimes it's useful for us to just think about it in very basic terms as well. Yeah. So the absurd, <laughs> just to begin with, it's this mm -hmm. this this grand mismatch between what uh, you, like your beliefs, intentions, and what you think is all important, and what is actually the case, what's actually going on in the real world. Mm -hmm. and and what you find is meaningful uh, or i'm sorry 
the fact that the universe is inherently void of meaning. So he takes yes. that for granted. He, he takes the, he does acknowledge that there might be meaning in the world, but we just mm -hmm. don't know it. We can't have contact with that fact. Or if it is fact yeah. or friction, if there is actually meaning inherent within the universe. So he just takes it as, you know, I don't, you know, we don't know. He's, he's agnostic mm -hmm. to that point. He just doesn't know. And he calls it the absurd. And he doesn't, and so to look for meaning, he didn't really emphasize as much as Sartre did. He's just, d despite the absurd and the fact that we can't find that there is no meaning in life, we don't have to go look for meaning. So you mm -hmm. see how there's a difference there. He's saying, don't, don't look for meaning, just uh, live without appeal. That's one of his taglines. It's just don't have an appeal to. Well, I think he, he acknowledges not to cut you off. Right, I think yeah, he acknowledges on. that there's this like irony because we like like you mentioned, he kind of posits that there's no meaning in this world. Yet we still have this inherent, not even just desire, but like a demand. Like we demand that there is meaning in this world. Like we demand a purpose. It's almost like a. Uh, defect of our self-consciousness that we expect there to be a purpose like we expect teleology essentially yeah. and uh and so i think you had a great example in one of your videos where you were talking about how you know your dog is running to the mailbox repeatedly every day as if there's like some kind of meaning there as if this like and he derives excitement and value from running to the mailbox and peeing on it and so forth but but really, there's no there's no purpose to it, and 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 he acknowledges that, and he acknowledges like that's that's what absurd is in simplest terms. It's like what is absurd is all the things we do and expect it to have or assume it has meaning, but we also uh, kind of ignore and put in the back of our mind the reality that there is no meaning. Yeah. Um, and, but, and then this, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, no. So yeah, but the the difference was that the dog couldn't he doesn't understand that that's absurd that's right and yes what's interesting so that that you sent me a clip today about consciousness and how like the yeah. defect of our self-consciousness is that mm -hmm. it, that is just too advanced right that mm -hmm. we we shouldn't be able to uh we're like the only at least creature that i was thinking about this a few hours ago yes we're the only creature that we know of that is self-reflective that not only is like conscious of what we're doing but we're conscious that we're conscious of doing it you know, it's just like acknowledgement of the self that makes things very complicated. So, but so because of that, I, I say that mm -hmm. because that goes to my point. Like we can acknowledge the absurd. Like we we can become we can become aware of just how absurd yes. everything is, and that we do live probably probabilistically in a universe that is devoid of meaning, that it's empty of actual mm -hmm. meaning, and uh, yeah, we can have a rough time with that. So he decides to rebel to that. So would describe that attitude of rebellion. So, yeah. And despite that, he, he said we can respond to the absurd in three ways. So we can commit suicide, right? But he's like, you know, what? what's the point? Like, I, There's no fun in that. There's like, yeah, <laughs> I mean, you're, you're alive. It's, it's just he does acknowledge that by saying that. It's, it's better to stay alive that there is it, it's better to experience something rather than nothing so mm -hmm. you're not helping anything by committing suicide it's not yeah. changing anything and so that's that's the one way that you could respond to it the second way is that you can uh, commit philosophical suicide by 
submitting to a church doctrine or, or yeah, yeah a religion uh, become religiously minded have having some cookie cutter cookie cutter mm-hmm. kind of uh, dish served to you that has all the do's and don'ts and those are all the absolutes of life mm-hmm. and it comes in the form of a book and what God said to you uh, mm-hmm. that's that's philosophical suicide and then you can three encounter the absurd and embrace the absurd and just live on anyways so yeah, always acknowledging that the absurd is there and rebelling against that and affirming life despite the absurd yeah is, is it, the it, attitude it, it, it's, it's it's like it's existentialism and so you kind of like you you wanted to kind of tease into like what's the difference between existentialism nihilism and absurdism i i feel like in my mind nihilism is just existentialism with a bad attitude and absurdism is ex- existentialism but with a good attitude mm. if that makes sense i like that i like that um it, it ties back to like camus famous quote too like one must imagine sisyphus happy right so he references in that you know a lot of what you're discussing, he, 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 I always, if someone's going to get into Camus, I kind of point him towards the myth of Sisyphus. I think, you know, The Stranger and some of his other works are great as well, but I think that, like, lays the groundwork and explains things in his philosophy best. And uh, so he references this mythical uh, character from Greek mythology, Sisyphus, who's condemned to basically roll this boulder up the hill just to have it, you know, slide back down the next day or as soon as he does and He has to just... Comp- uh, keep doing this essentially for eternity and uh again it's it's that idea of rebelling against okay rolling up this boulder it's meaningless i'm not going anywhere with this i just i'm just doing it for eternity it's a completely uh absent like you said void of any purpose but i'm going to continue to do it and 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 kind of try and find enjoyment in it uh regardless and that's what i like about philosophy and we, we teased it a little bit in the beginning is that it's this movement or philosophy whatever you want to call it as we describe it's not really a philosophy but a collection of different uh ideas that are loosely related and somewhat related more more concretely but is its pragmatic application is it's our ability to apply it to our day-to-day life what are your thoughts on that especially compared to other other philosophies and how would you if you could to put you on the spot in a way bullet point a few steps that somebody could implement these uh, ideas immediately into their life, broadly speaking. Yeah, it's so going back to what I said a little bit before, it's not mm-hmm. for everyone. I, I wouldn't encourage, you know, well, and everyone goes through existential issues. Everyone at yes. some point is, an it's the famous uh, existential crisis, right? Well, yeah, they go through that existentialist episode, or because yes. it's a mood, it's it's uh, it's what you said. It's like the set of 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 themes and ideas that that are consistent around uh, what is the meaning of it all and um, these universal condition uh, conditions. Well, of it's humans. almost to put it in a single word. It's almost like the ground, like the foundation of philosophy of just asking why. Why am I here or why am I working this job? Why am I in this relationship, right? Yeah, yeah. So, and I think the starting point is just the, you, you can bring it back to Socrates and I, I think mm-hmm. that's actually a good, you know, yeah. oddly enough, it, it, just to have 
exercise that Socratic method of asking questions and exercising mm -hmm. epistemic humility, which means just exercising the, um, yeah, the, the fact that you don't know uh, everything mm -hmm. and, and that's okay to be wrong and, and be humble about that, that allow that to push you forward to keep being curious and keep exploring and keep finding new solutions. So mm -hmm. I, I think that should always be the attitude of everyone and investigating mm -hmm. th new things because that also keeps you from being so rigorously grounded in a certain dogma that you found yes. the way and that, okay, you could check it off like as a checklist uh, on, your, on your list, but because it, philosophy isn't like that, it's not a, it's not a checkbox to be checked off. It's something yes. that is a process, like we said, and that process is knowing yourself. And mm -hmm. so you can't just... <laughs> Yeah, if you're a ver if you're a noun, you can do that. But yeah, it's not like that. It's like it's like stop seeking certainty and just enjoy the discovery of it, right? Enjoy, yeah. Enjoy figuring out these these principles as you go through life. Yeah, it's just like I don't know who I am, so let, let's mm -hmm. figure it out. Let's find it out. Um, mm -hmm. That could be another way of looking at it. It's just never being certain that you really know who you are. Yeah. Because you're always constantly changing. Mm -hmm. And as much as time is moving on and moving on, like you don't know. It's just, did when you were a kid and you like playing with toys, did you always think you were always going to enjoy playing with toys? Mm -hmm. I mean, no. Well, it ties, it ties back to uh, becoming, exactly. It's like you're going to evolve as a person. Your values may change. Your interests may change, as you mentioned. You may not want to do those toys anymore. You may not like this job or this friend group anymore. And uh, I think it's embracing that that change and that evolution of yeah. the self. Yeah, absolutely. And not getting yeah bogged down in one and one set of interest and values mm -hmm. that you had at a certain point in time because, yeah, that's just living in the past. So I want to ask you where Kafka fits in all this, because I, I, I know I sent you a text. I was like, do you want to ramble on Kafka? Because he's such a fascinating writer as well. And again, another fiction writer. And his stories to me embody a lot of those absurdist themes, uh, because just the weirdest, the weirdest things happen in his story. And, and, and hence the term used often later on is like Kafka-esque, like a Kafka-esque story. And I mean, he's got one, of course, in the famous Metamorphosis where the main character, like the story starts, he just wakes up and now this guy's an insect. And the funny thing about it is not just that he's an insect, but that he doesn't really react to the bot to the fact that his body is dramatically changed into a bug. He's kind of like, well, shit, I got to get to work. <laughs> so what are your thoughts on Kafka? And, you know, what are your favorite, I guess, m themes or principles that you take away from him? Yeah, the Kafka-esque is really closely related to the absurd i say they're like yes. close cousins i would say mm -hmm. because what is kafka-esque is this understanding of a system an oppressive system that is hyper confusing and complex and that we we don't really understand the underpinnings or or what mm -hmm. what goes on in that system the example is uh the, the judgment or the trial I love the trial. Yeah. That's the other one I've read. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, so this guy, the, the protagonist is dragged mm -hmm. to, to court. He has no idea for why or what, what's going on. <laughs> they never and, tell him why. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just one court procedure after another. And it's very, 
yeah it, it's very complex it but you can also tell it's just rooted and embedded in this these this tradition in the way of oh this is just what we've always done right yes um it and mil the I military is very much like that i mean if you go to the dmv it's very much like it's very dry yes. and well, the story I, I was thinking about on my run the story to me what i drew out of it was and I won't spoil the ending, but it doesn't end in the best way. And and it's because the protagonist, as you mentioned, is just so fed up with the bureaucracy and the like standard procedures that he just wants to know what he's charged with, when the trial is going to like end. There's never like a set timeline. He just wants to know what is my sentence going to be. He just never can get certainty. And so he lives in this perpetual cycle of like anxiety and angst and confusion and i think uh yeah it's it's just like comical in that way and he at at, the, at that point he just submits uh because i think we get that way too we just want to know and it kind of goes back to just wanting a, a, those those principles to live by and wanting certainty in life is we get a lot of anxiety when we don't know things for certain when we don't have set end dates or set time frames or set uh things in life and we don't don't like that uh, ambiguity. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, we want to know things for certain, and mm -hmm. it's it's another example of the of the Kafka is is like a paternal the paternal figure just yes and on the very concrete level, and he actually had his own struggles with his father, mm -hmm. uh, as I think you know. So. I think that really fuels a lot of his writings and motivated a lot of the things that he wrote was because of the issues that he had with his own father and wanting to please him. And, mm -hmm. and because he was, uh, his father, I think it's Henry Richard, I forget his first name, but it, his father was disappointing that he didn't follow in his, his, his footsteps. And he wanted to go to law school and he did go to law school. He forced him to go to law school kind of way, but uh, uh, Franz wanted to be a writer and he was very mm -hmm. bookish and just not all leveling up well, to w what the father expected him to be. Yeah. And he actually wrote a letter addressing uh, why he's yeah. so afraid of his, of, of his father, of his dad. And he gave it to his mom to read first. And the mom read it and she gave it back to him. She could never give it to the, uh, to her husband. Mm -hmm. And uh, she told his son, she told her son, she told Franz, don't, uh, better not to bother a, a busy man with, with something like this. And, uh, and so, well, he yeah, has that it, one it never... story. I don't, I don't know if you remember it that well. It's, it, and with that collection of the stories I have that, uh, where at one point his dad's like reacting in the scenario where he's like writing this this friend of his and it, it leads down but there's this one point where there's father is uh basically getting aggressive with him and he describes him as this like immensely towering figure where in the beginning of the story he was like this feeble old man and then you know out of nowhere he becomes this like towering monster and it it very well articulates how he felt with his own father in that relationship yeah yeah it's a good, uh, what kind of uh, literary device would that be? Mm -hmm. um, Foreshadowing or? 
or something an, like that. An allegory. The, the, yeah, an allegory. Yeah, the, the funny thing, that's probably what it is. The funny thing about Kafka, too, is uh, how his stories came about in the first place because he wrote his friend, I forgot his friend's name, and was like, burn all of these stories. And yeah. What, it, what, is the, what does his friend do, like every best friend? He said, no, I'm going to go ahead and publish all of them. <laughs> yeah. So you put them on blast. Enough, yeah. So we're fortunate to have his writings. Yeah. In the, uh, Thanks the to his friends. Yeah. He had one good just, homie, man. Yeah, he had one one job, and he's like, "Nope, nope, not only going to keep them, I'm going to publish them." And uh, and he never knew. I, that's so crazy. That's crazy <laughs> to me sometimes when you have that genius and you've created mm -hmm. such great works, and you never know. That's what I was gonna say. Is uh, just posthumously the yeah. God, that that self. Well, and I, I'm gonna get to. I know you're not a big fan. I'm gonna get to him at David Foster Wallace in a little bit. Uh -huh. But uh, but he's a little bit of that too, where you look back and you're like, man, we were like robbed of a genius. And I mean, Kafka got to write, but he died, I believe, of like tuberculosis early. Right. Um. But there's that. A lot of these writers, because we mentioned existentialism, although it can be a very life affirming, uh, and positive outlook on life, it's still very dreary. It still leaves you with a bit of like consistent dread. Um, I mean, and and this dealing and battling with your self-consciousness on a day-to-day -day basis can be very defeating. And a lot of these writers, they thought their work was shit. I think he burned or destroyed like a vast majority of his writings. And that that's why the stories we have from Kafka, there's not like too many and we're fortunate to have them um yeah unfortunately, there's probably way more stories that were that were great and I, I was talking off camera to you before the podcast about uh this portuguese writer pessoa and I, I was watching a review video just discussing the book broadly and he read a passage so i won't be able to pull it out but talking about he, he basically prophesized what was going to happen which was this writer never published any of his works. He actually his his book, the book of discontent or uh, disquiet, got found in in someone's trunk like years, decades after his death, and got published. I don't know, fifty, sixty, seventy years after Pessoa died. And in this book, he writes about how uh, I have this fear that no one's going to be able to understand me until years down after my death, and I'll people will start to resonate. My work will be famous, but I'll be long gone and dead. And he has this, I think he said something along the lines of like, we learn information that is only useful to our grandparents. Like by the time this information is, is valuable or fully understood or someone's fully understood, it's decades too late. And it would only like information or, or these lessons are only useful to dead men or something like that. So it just exemplifies this sense of, dread that and, and and angst that a lot of these writers had to overcome to publish what they the few works that they did yeah they just had to do what they loved they they were compelled by it you know they yeah they didn't have a sub stack you know <laughs> yeah i mean even if they imagine? did there'd be no readers i mean it's just <laughs> yeah that's that's the yeah. equivalent of publishing and mm -hmm. there were just no ears for it which is just insane you know when you when you think about how well received some of the, like from Nietzsche or uh, yeah. even famous novelists like uh, mm -hmm. uh, oh my gosh the the Gatsby you know yeah. F Scott Fitzgerald that was uh, posthumously posthumously uh, received well and uh, yeah so many other even artists yeah so many artists who whose painting 
I forget, I forget who, there's one guy who didn't sell one painting mm-hmm. and, oh my God, it's killing me that I don't know his name. Or I can't and then after it. he's dead, they go for millions. Yeah, and it's just yeah. And then they, what's they sad? Never these guys live it. in absolute like depression their whole life, and yeah, and then they're praised after they're they're dead, and it's like, well, it's nice for their legacy, but they never knew that they would even have. Yeah, can you imagine so that? I think yeah. Bukowski, uh, Bukowski got lucky, Charles Bukowski, because yeah. uh, he he saw his incline to fame at the very end. Some people get it at the end. Yeah. 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 Um, but man, yeah, that's just it's wild. it's frustrating. Yeah, yeah. It, it, I can't. Well, yeah, it's just to not to be like a, a Kafka and just dying <laughs> and saying destroy everything because it's trash, but then yeah. not really knowing how great it was. Just not to have that affirmation. <laughs> it's just so sad to me, man. It is sad. Well, a lot of the yeah, again, they're just so isolated and um. That's why just anyone who does anything creative and I I learned this at like a young age because I got bullied here or there for YouTubes or music or this or that like middle school. And so I kind of developed this sense of like, one, I'm not going to let people kind of dictate whatever I do. I'm just going to get over with it. I I kind of understood, okay, this is what happens when you create stuff. People are going to shit on it. And then two... (laughs) I found a better respect yeah. of anyone who does anything creative. Even if I look at, you know, the weirdo in like the the band hallway at high school that's doing this or that, I'm like, you know what? You might be weird. I may not like whatever you're you're doing, whatever you're into, but I respect the hell out of it. Like it's it's those people that are more isolated or awkward or whatever you want to call it that have profound creativity. And so I always want to, even if it's not for me, like support it and acknowledge it, you know, the best I can. But, you know, we've talked about a lot of great male existentialists and writers. Who were some female existentialism uh, or existentialist writers that I need to add to my list uh, and, and that people should look into? Yeah, I think the most popular and well-known female existentialist is Simone de Beauvoir. Yeah. And for a good reason. She was just a sparkling. Well, she like kickstarted uh, the second wave of feminism, right? Yeah, or yeah, third. with her with her book, the second, second sex, yeah, second sex, mm-hmm. yeah. And so, yeah, it was huge influence to the feminist movement. That feminist mm-hmm. movement, the second wave, uh, women's rights to vote. Yeah, and uh, just her philosophical ideas of the other, and how. Uh, how it how it feels to be subjectively a woman and to mm-hmm. experience the male gaze and to uh, the the hurdles and the conflicts and the obstacles of going through life as a woman and, and to feel that in relation to a man she articulated better than anyone i've, I've ever i've read mm-hmm. so uh granted i haven't read a whole wide berth of of feminist books who who explain that yeah no i don't blame you i know that one's on my list though and i think we talked about hannah Arndt, or i always feel like you know people pronounce either Sartre or sartre and then i i'm saying aren't because i've heard it that way but i think you say it a little bit differently too although uh, that's besides the point yeah 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 you know tomato tomato it's just i think i you think they're we're both, talking about <laughs> i think they're both acceptable english yeah translations yeah mm-hmm so I guess her and I guess and who, are there any others I'm missing that are worth uh, looking into as well? Yeah, I, well, yeah, like you said, Hannah Arendt and uh, or Arendt. Um, 
You know, I've been getting into Susan Sontag. I've seen some of her books on like my explore page. I'll see like people post, you know, an aesthetic picture of a few of their books and I've seen that. I don't know anything about her. Yeah, she isn't like a traditional proper existentialist, but uh -huh. you know, her writings definitely cover a lot of existentialist themes. And damn, is she brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about uh, more modern existentialism because we talk about like I think the pinnacle of existentialism would probably be that that French era, at least as far as like a real clear cut. Hey, this is what we're we're investigating versus the late 18th century, I think, was almost like a more romanticized uh, view of everything. Yeah. Modernly, I don't know. I haven't read too many modern texts, but I will say like one writer that I've been very fascinated with the past few months that I, I, I need to convert you on a little bit potentially is David Foster Wallace. And I find his writing just to be very, it, it's incredibly funny. It's incredibly satirical and his criticisms of society and consumerism and materialism and all of that is incredibly on point. And even reading through Infinite Jest, I'm like halfway through the tank of a book. He's, he's predicted. Congrats, man. That's a, I, I, I know, you. I know. I know you told me you were like 40 pages in and you're like, nope, <laughs> you know, but he uh, he's predicted some things in that book that come true. So like for those who don't know, it's essentially I don't know if I call it a dystopian world, but it's like set in like the future where uh, America, Canada and Mexico are essentially in this like giant alliance or, or nation. And uh, there's different there's essentially film cartridges that people view and keep in mind this is 1996 that he's writing this well in years prior published in 96 and we're essentially watching these film cartridges people are glued to these they're essentially like a step above tvs and i read a thing there, there was other examples in the book where he like predicts what's going to happen for example he talks about video phoning and i'm like oh you mean facetime and he talks about how people get so self-conscious about how they look on video because now that you're not talking on the phone, people see your face that people start to want um, some kind of – he describes it as like a physical mask that you put on that like digitizes wow. and shows you differently. And I'm like, you mean like the filters? filters? Yeah. And it's really weird. And then he talks about how people kind of revert back because they don't want to have to deal with how they look. And I'm like, you mean like voice messages that we kind of do now? And then uh, another thing I read this morning – he was like describing how now people are um, they got tired of the cable network and broadcasting and uh, now they're able to choose exactly what they want to watch when they want to watch it. And I'm like, like streaming. <laughs> it's it's eerie in a way because I'm like, all right, well, I see where this is heading. And that's probably why he felt uh, or part of the reason why he felt so depressed is he just saw all these issues in society getting only worse uh, further along the lines but he has a very interesting concept of the power of choice and uh, as much as if if you were not feeling infinite jest because it's definitely not for everybody a much shorter and more direct to the point uh book to read or speech to listen to is this is water have you listened to that commencement speech uh I, i've I, bits no. of it i i know it's um something to hear though for sure yeah, yeah. It's it's like 20 minutes. It's very good. They made it into a book as well that I think is maybe like 100 or so pages. And uh, it, it ties very much to, because he gave it, I think, 05, and then his book, The Pale King, which was published posthumously around like 2011. So he was working on it, but never finished it. This th the themes exist within it as well, is this power of choice and this idea of what we 
give attention to. And so he, he in the speech, he talks about how we're kind of so self-absorbed in society. We think me, 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 um, you know, you're driving in traffic and you just want to get home and someone cuts you off and you're pissed off. You're like, what the hell? You know, but he says that if we can enable this, and this is where I tie it to existentialism, if we can enable our self-consciousness, if we can choose and use that volition to uh, to perceive it differently, because he, he looks at like, okay, this event of getting cut off, that could just be meaninglessness and, and, and suffering in this world. But if I can choose to interpret it differently, if I can choose to imagine that the person who cut me off is rushing to the hospital to take their, their son who's sick, then I can say, okay, well, that's actually good. That actually has some value. So you're essentially choosing to assign value to it. Um, another, another thing he talks about in, in The Pale King, which he basically is, the scene is set like these IRS uh, workers doing the most mundane road tasks or looking through tax examination after tax examination, doing the most boring thing in the world. And yet he describes how uh, the person that can kind of choose to be unborable or that if we can aspire to become unborable, then anything in this world is possible. We can kind of um, elevate almost li literally and figuratively in this way by just choosing to pay attention. Now, what, what I've heard before is uh, from another philosopher on a podcast, Sean Kelly was describing this exact concept and he was saying how he feels that although that's a productive way to look at it, it's almost impossible to do that. Like anytime something bad happens to us, we can't just choose to imagine some vastly unlikely reality that the person at the register that gave us a mean look is actually taking care of their dead or you know their mom passing away at their home right like right. the chances of that are quite unlikely but there is something to that that uh, that idea of attention and awareness and realizing that we are just one subjective eye in a world of other people trying to make the most of existence and i'll leave you with like one little quote from the pale king and then see what you think about this is uh, he says it had something to do with paying attention and the ability to choose what I paid attention to and to be aware of that choice, the fact that it's a choice. And so what I take away from that is really enabling our consciousness and our intentionality. I guess to be more intentional about our values and what we choose to care about and derive purpose from. Yeah, I think what he described there is mindfulness. That was yes. a, a practice of mindfulness of just being aware that's mm -hmm. of what's arising in your consciousness, mm -hmm. noticing that, not identifying with it, and yeah, and just uh, just acknowledging it. Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, yeah. So that's uh, no, I mean, I yeah, I like that. I really, I do like that a lot. Um, no, you, you, you um, I'll, I'll need to, I'll need to read some, some more of him for sure. Because what was your reason again? I think you were saying he was just very verbose and like showing off essentially. Is that what, what was turning you away? He, he does. And he's, I can see him as an absolutist. Like I almost see there was a, like it should be this way. And that was like the professor in him. Uh, in terms mm, of gr yeah. grammar, too, like being that grammar Nazi that he was. He's very, too. Yeah, I mean, you have a great video on, on, on that. And, yeah, he is very much precise and absolutist with language. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It has He has a sense of this is how it should be. Mm. And I think that attitude, he actually took that to other things as well. And so that being probably the way that sh life should be. So life shouldn't be. Uh, a war 
it shouldn't be consisting of a world where we look at our phones and we have filters mm -hmm. and that's, you know, that is life. So he had a lot of a negative emotion towards that kind of a future mm -hmm. because of the word should the that, uh, that mental yes. attitude behind that uh, is really because it's a failed expectation. If yeah, that's really what his conviction of what the, yeah, if that's his conviction of what the world is going to be like, and that is a failed expectation. You can get depressed about that. This is with anything that you say with, with, with the word should. Like when you're sitting in a, yeah, if you, if you could just eliminate should in your life, you'll be such a happier person. Yeah. Like sitting cool. behind somebody in traffic and they're just going, they're just going slower. Or, and then you just say, oh, well, what you're really saying is like this, this guy should be going faster. Mm-hmm. Uh, not really. I mean, just, just don't say that and just do what, just keep going about life. I like that insight though. That's a good, uh, I think that's a really fair take on how he's, how he does view the world. He, he was almost overwhelmed unnecessarily with trying to like fix the world and then was frustrated when people wouldn't like listen to him or and understand him. But then he's also being like fairly convoluted uh, with how he's like, <laughs> Or, or pedantic himself. about some things. Yeah, yeah as are expressing himself. So, but at the same time, uh, yeah, just listening to like interviews of him too, he he was just very aware of like, to, to like a fault of himself in the room or how he was being perceived. And, and uh, like, there's this like interview, uh, if you just look it up, it's like the one from like 03 with like this German interviewer. And it just like I feel like it pinpoints or connects to that underground man idea where he's like thinking when well, he has a section of the Pale King too where he's like this character is worried about sweating which makes him sweat more and then oh what if this person across from me realizes that I'm sweating now I'm sweating more and it's like this just over perpetual cycle yeah yes and it's like a negative feedback loop yeah yeah so with existentialism and we talked about how practical it can be. I've always described it, at least internally and to others, as almost the answer or potential answer to a lot of modern secular meaninglessness in society. I think a lot of people, again, as we mentioned, I think society, I don't know if the stats actually reflect this, but I feel like people are becoming more and more secular. They're not leaning on the church, and even if they are Christians, they aren't following it in the same uh, dogmatic way as they once did. And so I feel like existentialism is, is a very life, as I mentioned, life-affirming philosophy that allows people to define themselves, define their own values, as we've mentioned, and just be very individualistic. And I think in, in America specifically, we value individualism and freedom, at least we profess to. Um, so what are your thoughts on how it tries to meet or alleviate some of the stress that comes with existential crisis? meet or alleviate some of the things that come with the existential crisis is uh, I think I, here's a good way to put it to preface it I think a lot of people growing up they're doing what they're supposed to do they're going to college because they're supposed to do they're going to they're getting this job because they're supposed to do and they're kind of going by uh, they're kind of conforming to society rather than defining their own expectations for themselves yeah I, well I think first I, I think what how existentialism can help you get through that is to have a sense of humor about it 
there is there is a humor to be seen in in the absurd and acknowledging yeah. that and all these writers this is all yeah. ridiculous like everything that we're doing like i'm on a video chat with you yeah hundreds of miles talking away of, from me you know we're talking about yeah. philosophy uh it's we're just talking about meaning and how there is know, no meaning <laughs> there is no you know? yeah it, this is how we choose to spend our days <laughs> yes exactly and yeah, it's just a lot of things that we do. I mean, I, I do jujitsu and I'm basically mm -hmm. wrestling with other men in pajamas. It's yeah, it's funny to me when I think about it sometimes. I'm just, but that's just that's so I, I think when we could fall back and laugh at ourselves mm -hmm. and and see the humor in it, that can help us get get through certain things in life just a little bit happier. Um, yeah. Well, one question I have too is like, so we referenced Stoicism and Stoicism has just been immensely popular and I get it because it's more, one, it ties to this uh, more masculine, but also just overall fitness space, right? Because you have these uh, principles of discipline, of showing up, of kind of indifference to your emotions that I think connect well to um, those populations. And uh, also Stoicism seems to be a little bit more readily available uh intellectually uh to people rather than trying to read like we mentioned a hegel or a Kant or even you know camus like we talked about isn't too hard to read but there's just there's more depth and density to it it, re it really involves you sitting down in a quiet room and figuring the shit out <laughs> yeah um so how what do you, how do you contrast it to stoicism because i think stoicism i've always described as to people as like hey this is probably going to be the best for you. You're probably going to get something out of this rather than me just uh, recommending something else. And I think it's very practical, but I do think what I wrote down here is there's almost this contrast of indifference with stoicism. Like I'm going to live in accordance with nature versus Camus rebellion is, or even Nietzsche is man finding fulfillment by rebelling against nature despite there being meaninglessness i'm going to derive value and, and assert myself in this world anyway yeah no i mean you that's spot on i feel like that is a key distinction because stoics stoics were pantheistic that was their religion mm -hmm. so they understood the logos god nature yes. the ultimate principle of the universe Fate has designed you to be where you're supposed to be in life. So the life circumstances you're in, uh, life mm -hmm. events you're in, uh, the status that you have, you're not supposed to veer away from that category, from that box that fate mm -hmm. has put you in. And you're supposed to make the most of your life within that category. Mm -hmm. Whereas existentialists would say, no, you need to break that mold and to extend as far as you can fly to to become whoever you want to be in life mm -hmm. so it's and I, so pop stoicism would actually subscribe more to that existential philosophy than actual yeah. traditional raw stoicism so that's a good like, distinction to make too pop stoicism versus uh yeah the real real stoic yeah like raw stoicism yeah. I, and i think uh holiday ryan holiday mm -hmm. is more existentialist than stoic in yes. that sense he, he you know, amor fati, love to love what is, mm -hmm. right? That was a famous Stoic mantra. Mm -hmm. And how he interprets that is is that to 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 love fate means that you need to, um, but, and from a Stoic perspective, that's just to stay in your lane, 
to yeah. to love the condition that you were brought into the world whether you were a slave or a king whatever so say you were a slave just to be content with that uh in the same way that epictetus was right so epictetus yeah. was a slave and he made the most of it and it did great right and and that was another thing so the stoic to be content in your circumstances and to control what you control Mm -hmm. to control what you can control that was a basic principle of stoicism which is very practical and that translates mm -hmm. but the way that amor fati gets into that it's uh to love what is to to again stay in your lane and to make the most of it people don't understand that to the fullest of of yeah. what what was meant by those traditional stoics that Oh, I'm not really supposed to oppose fate, to oppose mm -hmm. my general conditions of where I find myself that much, to where I'm actually making my whole my a life that is completely different and separate from what it looked like or what I was born into. Yeah, I think people want they're they're almost like coming to existentialism conclusions from stoicism and stoic teachings, right? Yeah, they they want the stoic teachings with the american dream which is yes. it's just but you might as well, well just and there's something existentialist there's, you know there's something romantic about ancient greece and like ancient rome as well that i think people have that like allure to yeah yeah there is the the, the old the ancient wisdom i think yes. that yeah. that resonates with a lot of, it's just like oh because it's old and it's ancient and it's and it's wise means that mm -hmm. it's actually getting at more of the root of how to live a good life. Yeah. Well, one thing I want to talk about and pick your brain on is this idea of continuous learning after traditional schooling or like self-taught learning, self-learning, however you want to describe it, uh, because or self-directed study is a good way to put it, too. Because both of us, neither of us have a degree in uh, philosophy. Neither of us study it or utilize it in our job uh, any direct way. Yet we both study it almost in a scholarly way, I feel like, and, and really analyze it and derive a lot of value from it. So did you always do that? Or, or how, what is your perspective on the value of doing that? Yeah, so I was a, a slow starter to studying philosophy so mm -hmm. like i said I, I was introduced to it in college and that's when i really became a student of philosophy and more and more after after college it was on and off but then more so recently in the common years but um and then and so your other question how how is what is the, the value of continued education well so like how I view it, and I made a short video um, on this at some point, is I think people after they get out of school, they don't want to pick up a book again. It almost gets beaten out of them, the enthusiasm of learning yeah. and taking notes. And I, I was that way. I mean, I went through school. Yeah. I was fortunately able to get like A's and B's without a single moment of studying. Like it was rare that I was going to like study or do my homework outside of school. And I kind of skated by. But by the time I got out of like, I, I really like never read in school, which is, you know, I look back and I'm like, man, I could have read some of these classics that now I'm like trying to toy with now. Um, and I think I just inspiring 
they lose that they lose that curiosity i guess is what i'm trying to put out like the curiosity the excitement for learning gets beaten out of people where after they work a long eight ten hour day they just want to get home and entertain themselves they just want to relax they just want to watch netflix or whatever rather than kind of sit down with a book that's going to require a lot of like focus and attention yeah so i think no, I see. I and I know those people too, and it's it's the majority yeah. I would say who who get out of college and you know enter the real world, so to speak, and mm -hmm. get a job. And I, I kind of go on and off or have different opinions about this because at first I was like, yeah, they they should continue reading and educating mm -hmm. themselves, but then I'm like, God, that's so impractical sometimes, um, just to be nose in a book and not enjoy not enjoying life. Uh, True. Well, so I, I'll, I'll put it this way. I don't think that it should be like philosophy for everybody. So for example, I spoke to uh, one power lifter um, a while ago, and he's really taught himself through his own like research, how to understand biomarkers and blood work really well. He's not a biologist, didn't go yeah. to school for science, just like a natural born meathead in a way, and taught himself this stuff. So it doesn't even have to be philosophy, it doesn't even have to be books. But this idea of continual learning, I mean, even with the stuff that each of us do with media, like teaching yourself a software program um, could, could be a way of continuing to kind of enlighten yourself. And, yeah, self-development. Yeah. Yes. Self-development. Yeah. In some ways, shape or form through mm -hmm. and find what you're interested in. So it does go back to that philosophical issue of knowing yourself. So that investigation of knowing yourself to see what you are interested in, what you're passionate about, so that you can go be creative and tackle that that thing by, you know, self-development and gaining knowledge and wisdom around whatever it is that you're interested in. You know, if it is um, uh, in bio uh, biohacking or, yeah, you know, exercise or a certain sport or activity or playing the violin or, or music. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, develop yourself in some way. I think that's important just to enrich your life more and more. Yes. With that kind of continued education. So, yeah, doesn't so much have to be philosophy or novels or books, but continuing to develop your mind and, and growing uh, in, mm -hmm. in, in your capacity towards a certain interest will just expand your appreciation for life. And I think yeah. that will echo and uh, benefit the people around you because you're yeah, bettering think... yourself essentially and that's going to make other people say i want that in you i want what you're doing in me mm -hmm. uh, i want to bring that best version of myself out because i see it in you yeah i mean i think that's how we derive or how we so we talk about what existentialism right it's like defining your values but how do you know your values or how are they going to evolve if you're not constantly doing or materializing yourself like we like Sartre talked about yeah. so you materialize yourself through action it's a philosophy of action is essentially what existentialism is and so that can be reading philosophy it can be uh learning like you mentioned the violin it can be playing a sport it can be learning a certain skill but essentially taking action in your life, you're going to find out you have a lot more passions, a lot more things that you can derive meaning from. Um, so that, that's what I think it really comes down to. But for those of, the, of uh, our listeners that are wondering how to get into philosophy, I think we talked about it a little bit referencing, you know, stoicism in a way, but where would you suggest that people start if they're trying to get into philosophy? 
Yeah, you know, I think it really depends on the individual. I don't want to make this. Uh, yeah, give a give really, a generalization, huh? Or I guess, or I guess you saying you can't give a generalization. I guess, it, it, uh, and that's and it's so anti-existentialist of me to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, here's what I'll say. I'll yeah. preface it and say my advice, and then yeah, you yeah. Can maybe shoehorn in yours. Is I always look at it as, and I kind of followed a hybrid approach to this. But I view starting or getting into philosophy, you can kind of look at it in three approaches. You can jump into whatever you're interested in, which I kind of did. I, I went right to Nietzsche and I understood a small percentage of it, but I was excited about it. You know, I was like, yeah. oh, Nietzsche, he sounds cool, blah, blah. His writings are interesting. Aphorisms are great. Um, another strategy you can do is going in a chronological order. So you can start with Socrates or you could really start with the pre-Socratics, but, you know, in the ancient Greeks, Socrates, uh, Aristotle, and work your way up through. I followed mostly that approach, got through, you know, I kind of skipped the medieval philosopher uh, philosophy because it's it's highly religious. Yeah. I kind of just jumped to... That's all there was, man. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, it was just, uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> murder and, and religion around those days. Yeah. Um, and then uh, the third approach is going by certain fields of thought. So going and reading like the existentialist, then reading German idealism, then reading, you know, Cartesian thinkers or rationalists. And you can kind of break it up that way too. And that way you can kind of balance around the ideas and see how, you know, Hume relates to Descartes or or Locke relates to a Berkeley. And you can kind of see the differences and the similarities and how these ideas evolve. Um, so that's that's one well, thing is, is figuring out kind of generally what approach you would want to take to getting into philosophy. Yeah. Um, and then also is just reading slowly and not trying to get bogged down with the details because you're not going to get everything out of the book or the novel the first time you go through it. So don't stress it. Um, take what notes you can, tab it up, um, you come back to it later, you'll get more on the reread. And um yeah, just like don't stress it too much. Yeah, no, I, I like I like uh, what you said, giving approaches mm -hmm. and tips. Uh, what I would add to that is, yeah, I'd start with what you're interested in, whether that be, yeah. is it practical philosophy? Is it, uh, are you wanting to get into the metaphysics? You know, and you also have your, you might not be, have any kind of philosophical background. You might be yeah. completely new. And in that case, that should really dictate who you're going to be introduced to. I, I wouldn't go to uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein yeah. as, as a first philosopher. It's just, you're going to be hella confused, dude. And even, even still someone who is well-versed in philosophy needs to have a commentator to kind of read along yeah. with what, what, what's going on in his brain uh, to understand, make sense of that. So yeah, it, Emmanuel Kant, you're not going to get him as, no. so I, I would, Try to be a little bit more selective and and who you like, reach to make, give yourself that, an easier time with some yeah. some of these cats, and yeah, who you're interested. I, I, Nietzsche is uh, there is a resurrection with Nietzsche because his yeah. books are uh, smaller and yes. he's a little bit yes. easier to understand with most, and he, he's definitely more relevant and one of the most popular ones. And he's benefited. Mm -hmm. He's um, his work has influenced so many other philosopher's works yes that that might be a good place to start he's a the decent place to start yeah. um i'll say this i think you can get the gist of what he's saying on the first pass it's just the deep layers underneath it that take a few like lectures of watching or podcasts to listen to 
or rereads to really get everything out of it. But yeah, Nietzsche honestly isn't too bad of a place to start. I would always say like Aristotle is a great place. Plato's dialogues are fine. I'm not a big fan of like the dialogue structure. I don't really enjoy it that much as a reader, but I think Aristotle has great works. His Nicomachean Ethics is uh, phenomenal. Uh, uh, One book I don't see people recommend that much for for beginners is uh, John Locke's An Essay Concerning Human Understanding. Have you read that? I haven't, no. That one's a really good book just for laying the groundwork of like where knowledge comes from. So it kind of looks at like uh, epistemological uh, analysis in that way. And it, it it's like, you know, he, he talks about identity and consciousness. And he talks about, you know, sensual uh, or our senses basically in our sensory, uh, how senses basically like leave that sensual activity leaves, leads to knowledge and understanding how we conceptualize it in our brain and all that. So it really kind of gives you an idea of where, rationalism comes from because all right we're who defines what reason is well reason you know comes from the uh, objective world it's from what we can see and experience through our senses so it's it's a great book it's fairly easy to read and also touches on some other subjects so that's a good one um but to round out a little bit of this discussion you referenced it earlier you're a jujitsu practitioner um and I think that's where I, when I first stumbled upon your videos, I was like, all right, I can tell this guy like works out too, which is a nice uh, thing to see, like or, or a nice place for us to kind of resonate with each other. Cause I, I've lifted for like eight or nine years at this point, ultra ran for like three years, but just this idea of being both a meathead, but also intellectually curious, you know, yeah. I've heard uh, one guy on my podcast described it this way and I wish I came up with it so I could like trademark it. But he called it like half monk, half motherfucker, and I thought that was perfect. So, so what what is your attitude towards this idea of like uh, mental training and also physical training? To put it in that way, yeah, for, I don't have a. For me, they just happen to be my interests. So I, I yeah. really, there is a a virtue I think in it, and uh, and I, it goes back to the Stoics. I, I think. Um, mm-hmm. Seneca said it, it's just we we treat our body uh, rigorously so that it just does not become disobedient to the mind, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of truth to that because when you can actually be disciplined in how you treat your body and really make it go through tough shit and and a lot of pain and actually knowing yourself more through that, um, that actually translates to your mind's resiliency. Uh, yeah. in a lot of other different things. Yeah, so. I'm trying to find the quote from, uh, there's one from Schopenhauer that basically he's like, I don't know, he, he's funny in this this one book. Like I found this at a uh, a bookstore in the small mountain town. It's like a used bro, uh, collection. I think they're called Black, uh, what's it called? Walter J. Black Editions. Have you seen these before? These like little red books? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I... I ended up uh, getting three of them. I got Bacon, Nietzsche, which is just Thus Books Arthustra, and then uh, Bacon's essays in there. And then in Schopenhauer's works of Schopenhauer, it's got um, The Wisdom of Life, uh, The Art of Literature and Studies of Pessimism. But anyway, I actually really enjoyed all of his writing, so I'm going to try and read more of Schopenhauer at some point. I feel like he gets a bad rep for just looking crazy and being a pessimist. Yeah. But um, he's got a interesting writing in general. And, and he I was. Guess some <laughs> He was. He yeah, was he super cynical, was. man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was. He was. He, a lot of these guys don't seem to be the life of the party. There's a funny YouTube video, I think, where a guy was like ranking, or uh, yeah, I think he was doing like 
one of those rank videos that people do on, on YouTube or tier ratings. And uh, he like one of the factors was how much you'd want to hang out with them or have a beer with them. And it's like, yeah, like Hegel, Schopenhauer, they're pretty low on the on the rings of that. You know, they don't look like the life of the party. Besides the point, uh, my thoughts on it. Yeah, I think it's I think it's critical to live your best life. You need to find some way of movement. I think it's critical for health, but I think it also benefits the mind as well. Um, I, I can't speak on all of these, but I know plenty of these philosophers did have some form of exercise. I know uh, to reference David Foster Wallace, he was really into tennis um, and, and found a lot of beauty in the art of that. And art was also incredibly important to many philosophers, including Nietzsche. Yeah, I think he said something along the lines of like, without um, music, like life is meaningless or something like that. Uh, and so with all that said, uh, having some form of movement, I think it, it brings clarity to the mind. I think it helps you just, uh, yeah, oh, relate yeah. things to life more and not just be bogged down and like keep, get your head stuck in a book, um, like you've said in the past. And, uh, and then if you are like into fitness and, and, and into lifting or jujitsu or any kind of sport, I think enriching your mind can only enable you to, to think about, uh, life within the sport and outside of the sport even better. Um, so I, I just, I like to see people that have both physical and intellectual pursuits in that way. Yeah. And I just think it makes you a better thinker as well. Yes. Uh, it's to have a break. I mean, the physiological science is there to back that up, you know, and that's mm -hmm. the number one thing you can do in terms of your longevity and your health span is mm -hmm. exercise. Uh, for yeah, your cognitive health, uh, along with your just everything else that's going on. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, just you can experience that on a phenomenological level in the way that you can experience mm -hmm. when I go exercise, I return to whatever intellectual pursuit just refreshed and actually Calmer. with more insight mm -hmm. and uh, just yeah, in a way that you can you, you shut off your computer and it comes back on. And it, it just has that, you know, it has that boost uh, mm. and everything is cleared out uh, from all the clutter and all the stress that mm. you were putting towards that effort. Just a nice reset is it's so, yeah, it, it's really freshening. Yeah. So Gage, what is next for you? Um, I know you got a, a ton of stuff that you do with your media company, but as far as like your writing on Substack, your YouTube channel, um, what are, I guess, some current things you're working on or, or aspirations you have? Yeah, well, right now I'm actually currently in a uh, psychological program, uh, master's okay. degree, getting my master's degree uh, to become a psychotherapist. Yeah, so oh, okay. in, in, in the weeds of that, and other than that, jujitsu, I've been trying to, trying to get my black belt, hopefully yeah. by the end of this year, if not this year, hopefully next year. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, if all goes well and no, no more injuries and yeah. want to compete a little bit more in jujitsu. So that'll be a little bit more priority, um, going into that, going into the black belt. Um, no, and outside of that, yeah, the, the projects with YouTube, just mm -hmm. trying to be more consistent with making videos and keep writing and keep thinking and just uh, yeah yeah well you put you put a hell of an effort into your videos like i i like the effort that i i put into my videos and i look at yours and i'm like man i'm just a i'm just a peasant out here because you put so much 
I feel like time and detail into uh, your your videos to make them visually appealing and even auditory appealing too, like the little um, sound effects too. So it it's it shows the uh, the work you put into it. So no, I appreciate. Uh, it. I actually, you know, I'll, I'll give you props on yours. Yours, you're very. I like your videos too. Your videos are very great. So I don't. Everyone has a style. Like there's some people that have like no graphics and their videos do gangbusters, and then. I'll look at like yours or mine and I'm like, man, what's going on here? You know, but there's, there's like a, there's a, obviously a preference. There's a style and there's value to everything. Um, so I, I appreciate that as well. Where can people find you and uh, your channel? Give them all the, the links and the plugs. Yeah, you can find uh, my YouTube channel at Turtleneck Philosophy. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's just, Is the yeah. Substack the same? Substack is the same, and I think Instagram is the same. It's just hash yeah. at turtleneck underscore philosophy. It'll be in the notes too. But yeah, I like yeah, to, yeah. Uh, ask people just in case. Yeah, awesome. Well, I appreciate this conversation, man. I had a blast, and we'll have to keep uh, stay in touch and bounce ideas back and forth because uh, I love getting book recommendations, getting your ideas. I definitely learn some deeper or different perspectives even on some of the same ideas and writers we've read. Um, so I just certainly had a blast. And if you guys uh, want to learn more about any of this stuff, pick up the books, uh, DM me or Gage, and we'd love to uh, to help on that journey. Um, share the podcast if you enjoyed it. Um, let us know what you think, and we'll catch you guys in the next one.